Let's open up this morning to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. If you're there, if you'll stand with me, if you're able, we'll read the passage. Ruth chapter 1, we're just going to be reading the first five verses. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives out of the women of Moab, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Father, once again we acknowledge nothing of real eternal value is accomplished without thy power. Lord, we're gathered here in obedience to your word. The scriptures are open before us. But we pray you'd breathe life into this meeting. That you take this passage of scripture and do, Lord, what only you can do. Lord, only you can make this word a sword that divides between soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So I pray, I pray, Father, You would be guest among us, searching, sifting, convicting, revealing, teaching. Lord, thank You for the awesome privilege of being fathers. Lord, on one hand, we, we see You as our Father, and we realize we're so unworthy of that title ourselves, but yet we want to embrace it. We want to honor you in that position. Help us, Lord, to lead our homes in godliness and righteousness. Lord, teach us all this morning through your blessed word. Thank you for this precious day, the Lord's day, to gather together. In Jesus' name, amen. But when you hear about the book of Ruth, what is it generally that comes to mind? If you know your Bible very well, you'd say, well, it's a, it is a gripping story of love, one of mercy, of redemption. Of course, the, the man Boaz, who actually, by the way, is the central figure in this book, and not technically Ruth, Boaz is one of the most striking pictures of Christ to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. I don't have time to 
uh, develop that particular thought this morning, but it is quite a study. Of course, Boaz is presented as the kinsman redeemer, the one who was a near kinsman to a particular indebted person who would have the resources and the resolve to buy that person back from the slavery they were under. The obvious picture is the Lord Jesus Christ took upon Himself a body of flesh. He became one of us to redeem us back from the slave market of sin. And this whole story of a Moabite girl, part of this cursed race in the Old Testament law, being redeemed and not just having your sins taken away, but being actually placed in the lineage of Christ. It's a fascinating story. It does show the tender mercy of God towards those that are termed as outcasts. Kind of like Rahab the harlot. It's another example that in all nations of the world, all who actually want to know God, not just say it, but it's a universal axiom, a character of the God of the Bible, that if you seek Him, you will find Him. Certainly see that depicted here in this Moabite girl. But I think what's often overlooked in the grand scheme is a sober warning that's subtly contained in these first five verses. I mean, God did indeed override human sinfulness to do great things in the life of Ruth. But He also dealt very severely with some who should have known better and yet still walked away from His precepts. So on one hand, you have Ruth who comes from this dark and idolatrous background who eventually willingly moves to the very land of promise because of the God who placed His name there. But before that, there's a record of a family that departed from that place of blessing to head to this pagan nation that Ruth would eventually come from. It was a pilgrimage in the opposite direction. And predictably, it yielded opposite results. So before we get to this love story, this story of redemption, our Lord sets up the leadership of Elimelech as sort of this marble pillar of warning. It speaks very loudly for all who would try to make some of the same mistakes that He did. Isn't it true the stakes of our role as husband, as fathers, as grandfathers could not be higher? You ever stop and think about the decisions you make in life? That it's very likely not next week, not next year, but even generations from now will be affected by the legacy you are currently leaving. That should produce a sober-minded carefulness in each one of us. So I'm going to preach to you this morning on Elimelech from the house of bread to the house of failure. You know, in many respects, Elimelech seemed to start out well. If you pay attention to the word meanings, particularly in this text, it's a short text and it seems vague, but there's actually a lot here. And listen, the Holy Spirit records none of this by accident. None of the name meanings. None of the town meanings. None of those are there just by happenstance. There's a reason why these are recorded. 
Why do I say Elimelech seemed to start well? Well, despite the widespread confusion that occurred in that time of the judges, this guy seemed to have spiritual privileges that very few still have in the world today in many respects. All of you remember the birth of your first child if you have children. All of you probably remember vividly the birth of all your children. Now, do you remember what it was like picking out names? I don't know about you, but for us, that was not an easy thing. Not because we were in disagreement about it, but because of the magnitude of it. This is what they're going to be called their whole life. This is what's going to be on all the official documentation. This is what's going to be on their driver's license. This is what they're going to be known as. And more than that, in many respects, this is a statement of our hopes and dreams and aspirations for this child. This is how we want them to appear to the world. You know, Elimelech's parents uh, wouldn't have been indifferent. And so apparently after thinking about things, they chose a name that fitted the hopes and dreams they had for this boy. The name Elimelech means, my God is king. It's hard to come up with a more poignant name than that. Of course, he was born into the one nation in all the earth that the God of heaven had chosen to be His covenant people, His mouthpiece to all the inhabitants on this terrestrial ball. All of his childhood, he would have heard how God is king. Mom and Dad, why'd you... Name me that. Well, son, there's a lot of gods in the world with lowercase g. But there's one God who's King of kings and Lord of lords. All of the gods of the surrounding pagans, son, are so many chunks of stone and wood and metal. And they're disgusting and impotent and powerless. But you don't ever forget, son, there's a God in heaven that is King. And son, you live like He is King. That's why we've given you this name. He grew up in the very land in which Abraham had sojourned by faith. Every night he would have looked up to the same stars that Abraham himself had seen in that very land. The land that flowed with milk and honey. The land on which the eyes of the Lord stayed continually. The land that God had prepared and cultivated for centuries. God delivers the Jews out of Egypt. And what did they find in that promised land? An uninhabited wasteland? No, they found cultivated cities and and orchards and vineyards and gardens and beauty. God had had that all prepared as they entered. Not only that, Elimelech was from the tribe of Judah. The very tribe prophesied clear back in Genesis 49 that the scepter is never going to depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. You see, Elimelech knew growing up he was at least a distant blood relative of the very eternal king that God would place on the throne of the Jews. He was from the kingly tribe. And that little boy Elimelech grew into manhood and eventually takes a bride named Naomi. That means pleasant, amiable. So what about their town? Now you remember there were two Bethlehems in Israel. There was one up north and the inheritance of Zebulun. It's just about due west of the Sea of Galilee. 
And then there's the other Bethlehem, which you know more about. The one that's called in Micah 5.2, Bethlehem Ephratah. Or in the New Testament, Bethlehem of Judea. Or here in our text, Bethlehem Judah. Of course, Bethlehem means house of bread. Judah means praise. So Elimelech quite literally grew up in what was called the house of bread and praise. You talk about the epitome of the place of blessing, the epicenter of God's working on this earth. That's where Elimelech was from. Even the title that's given there, Ephrathites, that's a family designation there in verse 2. Ephrathites means fruitful. And how little the world knew at that time how this house of bread and praise would become so fruitful in world history. Really, by man's standard, an insignificant village which is numbered somewhere around 7,000 inhabitants till the present time. But oh, God saw things so differently than that, didn't He? That little village of Bethlehem, Judah, was only five miles from the very hill where Abraham had offered his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Just five miles from the location where the Solomon's temple would eventually be built. It was there in Bethlehem, Judea, the house of bread and praise where King David would be born. It was there in the house of bread and praise that the Passover lambs would be raised and sold to worshipers coming from all the quarters of the world to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And of course, more than that, it was in that house of bread and praise where eventually the Lamb of God would take on the form of a man and be born in one of those many stables. Now somebody says, how could Elimelech have known what blessings awaited his descendants in that place? You see, you almost want to go back in history and say, listen to me. Just stay put. Stay where God's blessing you. Stay where He's planted you. You'll guarantee your descendants are going to be right in the place of blessing. But you see, that's just it. God doesn't usually tell us all the blessings that will come in the future as a result of obedience. What He does tell us is to obey. Turn that around. God also doesn't tell us usually what blessings are forfeited for a lack of obedience and we'll likely never know those on this planet. Now what happens from here? I mean, where does this man who's called my God is king here with this pleasant wife dwelling in the house of bread and praise from a fruitful family? Where does he end up? Remember the question that Paul asked the people of the region of Galatia? The apostles had a way of asking pointed questions and Chapter 5 and verse 7, here's what he asked them. He said, Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? See, what he's saying to him is, You came out of the starting block like a cannon. You were solid. You were growing. You were where you were supposed to be. You were grounded in the truth. You were listening to counsel. You were in the Word of God. You were in uh, among God's people. What happened to you? How did you get so far off track? Basically, we're asking the same question of Elimelech this morning. 
Maybe you're sitting here, you need to ask yourself the same question. You were running well. What took you off track? Who or what did that? You see, it's often right in the place of blessing. Right as we're seated there in the house of bread and praise, that the temptation to get derailed becomes the greatest. We're so good at taking blessings for granted, aren't we? How many of you have ever walked away from something in life only to realize years later what it is you gave up? Most of us have done that. I have. What a tragedy about human nature that is. Well, what were the factors that led to Elimelech's tragic blunder? First, I would say, the religious culture surrounding him. You see that in verse 1. This is in the days of when the judges ruled. So, you take the events in the book of Ruth, and chronologically, they're somewhere right in the middle of the book of Judges. Don't know exactly where, there's debate on that, but they were somewhere in that time frame where judges were ruling in Israel. Now, I mentioned he had great spiritual privilege. That is true. But what was the overall theme of the time of the judges? What was it? In those days, there was no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, may I suggest to you, we're not just talking about an earthly king. Israel was set up to be what? A theocracy. They were to be truly one nation under God as no other nation has been set up to be. And so when that text says there was no king, part of that saying, there was no king. There was religion. There was scrolls containing religious writings that came to form the Word of God, but there was no real widespread subjection to the kingship of the God in heaven. Basically, everyone had a handbag full of sophisticated reasons why God didn't have to be obeyed. And listen, if the surrounding nations there, they represent the lost pagan culture, Israel represents the apostate culture of people who claim allegiance to the one true God and yet don't listen to what He says. That's been Israel's history. Listen, that's very largely been the history of a lot of what's called itself Christianity. In Elimelech's day, there was a famine of the actual words of God even among those who claimed to have it and know it. The vast majority of Abraham's descendants would have given him disastrous counsel. Do I even need to remind you of the similarity to mainstream Christendom religion in our day? Do you realize the vast majority of people who name the name of Christ in this country, in this country, will give you satanic, disastrous counsel. Not because they're trying to, but because oftentimes it's based upon every isdom and ology except for the Word of God. I mean, you want evidence? Go read the statistics on the millions of professing sheep of the Lord wasting God's money to go down and watch the shack and view some satanic, disgusting, satanic, wicked, evil idol. And they don't know that's not the God of the Bible. No wonder they give such worldly counsel. 
because they have no idea what God is like. Same thing in Elimelech's day. So this step downward can begin with allowing prevailing religious culture and thinking patterns to dominate your decision making. I mean, I wonder how many real honest Jews were discerning enough and loving enough to get an Abimelech's or Elimelech's drill and say, we're willing to help you out, number one. Number two, you're dead wrong in what you're thinking of doing. How many would do that? When's the last time you surveyed what biblical counsel actually is? One says, well, there's safety in a multitude of counselors. Yes, properly understood. Number one, that's talking about counselors who, who show by their knowledge of the Scriptures and by their life that they actually know what they're talking about. Number two, biblical counsel is not people sitting over coffee talking about feelings. Biblical counsel is taking the principles of the Word of God and saying, this is the path forward. This is what God says. What are you going to do about it? That is Bible counsel. Just like, by the way, the first place that's mentioned in the Old Testament. Here comes Jethro. Remember Moses' father-in-law? He's going to give him counsel. What does he say? Here's what you need to do. Now what are you going to do about it? You see, that's the picture. But the blindness in our era is so shown by what's at the bestseller racks at the religious bookstore. Everything other than biblical precepts. No wonder there's such confusion. Alright, what next? Well, next comes just basic difficult circumstances. I mean, do those ever come? Look at verse 1. It says, there was a famine in the land. Now, uh, we hear the word famine. We could give a dictionary definition, but I think that word's really been defanged in our culture because it doesn't strike terror in us. With all of our irrigation equipment and all of our uh, going onto Amazon and having groceries delivered in the afternoon and all of our shipping technology, we don't really know what that word is like experientially. A famine meant empty tables. It meant growling stomachs. It meant no visible relief in sight. It meant the very real threat of actually slowly, miserably starving to death. No social security. No welfare. No nothing. Humanly speaking. Someone says, well, wait a minute. A famine in the land flowing with milk and honey? What's the deal? I thought the eyes of the Lord were on that place. Well... If you know the book of Deuteronomy, you know that a famine occurring in that land to that particular people meant one thing. And what? Judgment. It meant God's discipline. This had been promised clear back in the days of Moses. God promised these disciplinary actions if they rejected His Word. God promised escalating trouble, eventually ending in captivity to Assyria and Babylon. And He promised that generations before. You know, this is something that's so remarkable. Daniel understood this concept. You remember Daniel's amazing prayer in Daniel 9? You think Daniel wanted to leave the promised land? Not on your life. But here he is as a roughly 16-year-old teenager and he's drug off to this strange nation to serve in the, the court of this, this pagan wealthy king. And here in Daniel 9, he's, he's pouring out his heart to the Lord. And in verse 8, he says, O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers. 
because we have sinned against thee. You see, what Daniel was doing was taking sides with God and realizing the discipline that came was righteous and good and holy and correct. Daniel acknowledges that in that prayer. But basically, you have the opposite situation happening here. God's discipline has clearly fallen on the land. But some, at least, are using that very discipline as an excuse to disobey Him further by departing from where He wants them to stay. Honestly, think about your own life in this connection for a minute. Think of the stewardships given to you, the various stewardships. Your finances. Your human relationships. Your own spiritual temperature. Are very largely a product of the decisions you have made. You. They may have been decisions years ago. But the Lord has said, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. But here's the temptation. The difficulty comes. We recognize it as God's discipline. But the temptation is to jump from the frying pan into the fire because I don't like the very situation I created. Do I need to say it's always a mistake to go from God's discipline to more of God's discipline? If the thing that got you into that difficulty was disobedience to His Word, why in the world do you think it's going to fix the problem by disobeying Him further? You see, this is where we need to think like Daniel and take on a stock and say, Lord, You are right and correct in what You did. I sow. I'm reaping. And I accept it. And You are still worth following. You know, even in the pathway of obedience, even in the pathway of obedience, you live in a sin-cursed planet with a fallen nature and famines of all sorts will come. It's a guarantee. Some of you may face or have faced famines of finances. You feel like you open your wallet and all that comes out is dust and tumbleweeds. I've been there. That's why I'm not laughing. There's famines of emotions. I just wish I could feel alive. I just wish some passion would come. I just feel so numb. There's famines of direction. What happened to the vision? What happened to the forward motion? I barely see past the end of my nose. There's famines in human relationships, aren't there? Where'd the feelings go? There's famines in growth. Sometimes you look around and we say, I, uh, I just don't, I, I don't think I've grown at all. Now that can be true, but many times what I've learned is those times you think you're not growing is when you're striking the deepest roots. 
And God's about to shoot fruit up. But from your vantage point, you don't see it. It's a famine. But you see, it takes deliberate faith to remain in the house of bread when it feels like the house of famine. And to ask the spiritually mature question, have I contributed to this famine myself? And if so, do I accept God's righteous discipline? Some of you remember Pilgrim's Progress. One of the places that he came in this journey was the hill called Difficulty. Remember that account, some of you? And uh, here he is, and he's been told, you see this narrow pathway? You stay on it. You stay on it. There's going to be all kinds of byways. There's going to be bypath meadows. There's going to be all sorts of fancy explanations. But you keep one thing before. You stay on the straight and narrow. And they come to this hill, and it's called the hill difficulty. And the straight and narrow runs way up into the heavens on this high and steep mountain. And just then, here's two more companions. And they're saying, well, uh, boy, there's, there, there's really two nice pathways here that, that, that go around. They're, they're wide and they're not so steep. But really, if you go through Pilgrim's Progress, it's a lot of dialogue with Pilgrim's counselors, both good and bad, is what it is. The explanations and arguments in that book are astounding. Very, very poignant for today. Well, eventually, Pilgrim sets off on the straight and narrow up the hill difficulty, and these two companions of his go and take these other roads. See, what they're saying is, well, now, I'm just sure. I don't see any danger down as far as I can see, and they've got to come back together at the other side, and we'll all join at the other side of the mountain. You'll just be more tired and sweaty than us, but we're all going to be fine. And they go off, and one goes down the the trail called danger, and the other one goes down the trail called destruction, and they're never heard from again. How come? Because they took their eyes off the one central command to stay on the straight and narrow. And it became, well, I don't see how that's dangerous. Oh, it's so hard going straight so difficult. I think in our culture, which is characterized by being lovers of our own selves, we need reminder from time to time what Jesus said about discipleship. If any man will come after me, he said. Tell me, did he say, if any man will come after me, let him mollycoddle himself, bypass his cross, walk gingerly after Jesus. He said, if any man will come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. Stop making you the primary determining factor in your decisions. Listen, I've been in spiritual counsel with people for a lot of years, and do you know what the main thing I see when somebody's off track? It doesn't matter the situation. It usually comes back to I. I don't see how it's going to work. I don't feel how it's going to work. I don't get this. I don't want that. I, 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 I. I'm having a hard time. This is hard on me. Nobody thinks about me. Nobody understands me. Your life isn't yours. You were bought with a price. 
And listen, if you don't get rid of this cursed satanic cultural icon of you that loves you and only thinks about you, you're going to shipwreck your life and in the lives of those around you. That's true of all of you. Let him deny himself, he says, and take up his cross. You mean I'm called to embrace difficulty? Yes. Friends, this book is written about a God who became man and suffered and bled and died as a criminal for you. The apostles were sawn in half and stoned to death and burned alive and had their heads chopped off. Don't you sit here and look at them and say it's all about ease and comfort and all about me. How dare you and how dare me? No wonder Christianity is so powerless in this generation because we love our own self. Deny self. Embrace difficulty. And then, you know what? Having done that, now you're ready to follow Him because guess what? He did the same thing before you. We're good rationalizers, aren't we? Oh, we're good at that. You know something? Every time you begin to debate in your head whether or not to obey the plain commands of God, you are in severe danger. Every time. How'd the first sin start in the Garden of Eden? You know, it's not really so complicated. Don't eat the fruit or you'll die. But what happens? The discussion opens up. The dialogue. Let me tell you something. You are no intellectual match for the devil or for your own flesh. God doesn't tell you dialogue with darkness. He tells you separate and listen to Him. Imagine the dinner time conversation there at Elimelech's table before they left. By the way, notice in verse 21 quickly, this is a statement Naomi made as she came back. She said, I went out full and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Now, it was a time of famine, but that's at least indicative they weren't totally destitute. They still had some, just not as much. They had their necessary bread. They just didn't have the abundance they wanted. And here they are sitting over dinner. And we're staying here like God said. I mean, why the famine? You know, it's not really fair that somebody else sinned and now I have to suffer for it. That sure never happened in Bible history, has it? I mean, I don't see why we have to go through this. Where, where's God? You know, I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, I just can't see a future here for us. I mean, I don't see how good can come out of this. I'm looking down the pathway and I just, I, I don't see it. You know, really, the more I think about it, dear, it just, it just feels so right. I mean, I have such a peace about loading up the carts and heading for Moab. It just uh, makes financial sense. It pencils out. Here's my chart, pie graph. See that? This is where we'll be in, in, in a couple years. Retirement package, note that. Uh, it, it makes financial sense. It makes practical sense. It makes emotional sense. I mean, this really kind of rejuvenates my passions. I don't know about you, but I'm excited talking about this. It must be of God. 
I mean, two of our neighbors already went away. And they believe in God too. Are you saying they could be wrong? And look at all we're missing here. I just want to provide better things for you guys. Which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that alone. It's when it's attached to compromise that it becomes the devil's dart. Imagine here's the boys. They say, oh, you know, Dad, uh, something I don't get. What's that, my sons? Well, you've taught us all these years that this is the, the, the promised land. The eyes of the Lord are in this place. You've taught us all that God did in the past. You've told us repeatedly it's the will of God for us to stay here. I, I guess I just don't get why we're talking about moving now. Well, son, we got to be reasonable about this. You know, it's okay to ignore what the Lord said if things are hard and it doesn't make sense. Mark you well, those boys never, ever forgot that defective theology lesson the rest of their days. And it damned both of them. And so they pack their bags and they head off to Moab. And what they think is going to be promised land 2.0 is actually Satan's pit covered with a thin veneer of astroturf. But unfortunately, they had to go there to find out. And what's the symbolism of heading to Moab, by the way? What's the big deal? Most of you are familiar with the history of Moab. Moab begins with the man Lot, nephew to Abraham, who, by the way, also started off well, didn't he? You know, Lot was from Ur of the Chaldees. It was quite sophisticated. Indoor plumbing, pools and fountains, two-story houses. The ruins have been found in those things. Massive libraries. This was no uh, collection of tents and camels. And so when Abraham departs because of the promises and the command of God, Lot says, hey, I'm throwing in my Lot with you. What do you say, Uncle Abe? Can I come along? And and he goes along with Uncle Abe, presumably to know Uncle Abraham's God. He started well, but eventually he's given the choice of which land to inhabit. But you know, Lot really had no spiritual eyes. All he saw was the present circumstances. He makes a terrible choice and eventually he rationalizes life in Sodom for years. All his daughters had known was that wicked place. And then eventually comes the day where God lowers the boom. And all he knows and loves goes up in flames. His wife is turned to salt. His extended family is incinerated. Except for two daughters that are vastly perverted in their minds. You see, he could get his daughters out of Sodom, but he couldn't get Sodom out of his daughters. With a combination of incest and alcohol... In that infamous cave, Moab and Ammon are conceived and eventually born. And then you have these inveterate enemies of the Jews for the next hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, really, we could ask Lot the same question. Lot, you did run well. <coughs> Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? So basically, the history of Moab is one of partial obedience to the God of heaven when it makes sense. 
But when trials come, when faith is really tested, the philosophy of Moab's history was that long-term blessing and obedience are traded in for temporary satisfaction. Faith is traded in for sight too early. Obedience is traded for feeling and eternal treasure is traded for temporary rewards and pleasure that are all going to burn up. And notice verse 1. What were they going to do? It says, uh, they went. what did they go to do? They went to sojourn in the land of Moab. Now the word sojourn means to stay temporarily. It meant to just go there for a bit. I mean, you could hear him, right? Oh no, we're, we're not staying long. You see, it's just long enough to get back on our feet. Just toward this, just till the storm blows over. I mean, they're not total strangers, mind you. They're related to our father Abraham. Can they be all bad? And it's not far. It's only about 60 miles. We could be back here within hours. Dear, the children will be okay. They're resilient. They'll bounce back. It's just for a little while. We'll be really careful. We'll listen to some extra sermons. Our hearts will always be here in the house of bread and praise. Now what's the reality? You see, they went to sojourn. What happens in verse 2? The last three words, and continued there. That means they set up long-term residence there. I mean, sound familiar? That's the same thing Lot did. He's going to be out in the country in a tent. And then he's going to turn his tent towards Sodom. And then he's going to be in Sodom for a little while just for the safety, the protection, temporary blessing. And eventually, 20 years later, we find him there sitting as a judge in the gate. You see, this family with a total absence of godly counsel, with no reminders of Jehovah's great works, they never went over to the River Jordan and looked at those piles of stones and asked, what meaneth this? Well, son, that's where the priests pass over dry shod when God stopped this river to give us this land in the first place. And what, what are those two mountains there, Father? Well, son, that's, that's Ebal and that's Gerizim. And that's where the, the blessings and, and cursings were given. Well, what's that uh, tabernacle? Father, I mean, what? Well, son, this is where sin is atoned for. You see, they had none of that in a foreign pagan country. No sacrifices, no priesthood, and like a boat just quietly untied from a dock in a gentle breeze, what happens? It just slowly drifts. I think I was about nine years old. I was on a fishing trip with my father, and we were in one of these little ocean communities in, in southeast Alaska. Beautiful place. And we'd been on a fishing trip out in the ocean, and we come back into the harbor, and we pull up the shore, and my dad says, all right, I'm going to go get the truck and trailer. You hang on to the boat. Not so complicated, right? And so dad walks off, and I'm, I'm holding that boat. I'm not going to let it float off for a few minutes. And then and I see a little sand shrimp go by. I thought, well, now, boy, if I could only catch that. I mean, the boat's not going anywhere. It's calm. And so I grabbed the shrimp, and I grabbed the boat, and then the next shrimp's further away. And then, 
and then there's that hermit crab, and, and, then, and then the starfish, and boy, look at that shell. 30 minutes go by. I hear a question from a voice that shocks me out of reality. Son, what about my boat? Oh, you mean the one that's 200 feet out there now? Yeah, that, that one. Yeah, I can still see the boat. I can still, it's right there. That's how drifting happens. Weeks add up to months. Months are the substance of years, and there they stay. How many people do you know that have spiritually shipwrecked their life? Probably several. How many of them began with the words, just for a little while? I'm just going to sojourn. I'm just going to date that person for just a little while. I'm just, a con- I'm just going to continue that habit just, just for a, just a little while. I'm just going to back away from the Lord's people just, just for a little while. I, you know, this job, I know, I know there's some compromise involved, but you know, it's just for a while. What's the end of that story? You know, even the Apostle Paul himself had this fear that he would be a castaway. That doesn't mean he'd lose his salvation. Here's what it meant. I don't want to get so sidetracked from the straight and narrow way that I mar my testimony and make myself unusable to a large extent in the Lord's service. Paul was afraid of that. Tell me something. Is it better to start well or finish well? Every one of you should have a determination. You're going to finish well. Finish well. It's never safe to depart from the house of bread and praise. That's why we're warned about the deceitfulness of sin. You see, sin doesn't just defile. It's very eloquent in its arguments. It's very good at giving convincing reasons. Now that's why we're warned about that very thing. It's, uh, I mean, maybe Elimelech after a few years, he says, oh, you know, I think we made the right choice, dear. I, you know, I mean, business is a success. Pantry's overflowing. No, but what a house we have. I mean, we never had this over in, over in Bethlehem. Why go back to Bethlehem now? I mean, all the strictness and difficulty... All the talk of instant obedience, all the coming day of accountability, all the constant blood sacrifices and the smoke ascending to heaven. I mean, we're so free here. Everything seemed to be in order except one. He was failing in the one central purpose for which he was created, namely to be a light in the world and give glory to God. Do you understand even modern-day Christendom can count you as success in every single area of your life? But if you're missing the one central aim of causing others by your words in life to think right thoughts about God, you are failing. I'm not talking about perfection. Understand what I'm saying. 
But I'm saying if that's not the sharpened point on the arrow of your existence, you're aiming at the wrong target. You see, the frightening truth is God may let you go the wrong way for decades. He may bless you materially. He may give you all the things you think you want until all you have left is the bitter fruit of your own choices and a miserable conscience filled to the brim with regret. Imagine Elimelech trying to be a witness for God in Moab. Can you imagine? Here Moab's feeling a little evangelistic, or Elimelech's feeling evangelistic. He says, hey, uh, neighbor Moabite, I just noticed the way you're living there. And I just wanted to tell you about, uh, about there's a God in Israel. I just thought maybe you might like to talk about Him. The guy says, well, you know, it's interesting you say that because, in fact, I know the history of the Jews. I know what he did to Egypt. I know how he stopped the Jordan River so they could pass in. You know, sir, I find it highly ironic your name is my God is King. If he's such a king, why don't you do what he says? Remember what the men of Sodom said to Lot when he tried to call their behavior evil? Remember that? He'd been there quite some time. I hear he's saying, Brethren, don't do so wickedly. What'd they say? <clears throat> this one fellow came to sojourn among us, and he must needs be a judge over us. We're going to deal worse with you than with them. See, same kind of thing. Here's the sad truth. A real Christian, a real Christian who is in a pattern of backsliding and backing away from the things of God really doesn't belong anywhere. They try to be a witness for Christ in the community who, by the way, knows how they should live. And they're going to turn around and devour them. But oh, to be around the real people of God, why, the temperature's just too hot. So what happens? They either form a circle of other compromisers or they fade off into obscurity. Many of those that have fallen by that wayside. Oh, what's the results of all this? How about his children? Look again at this family portrait in verse 2. Let's say here you're looking at a picture on the wall. And the name of the man was, My God is King. And the name of the wife pleasant and amiable and the name of the two sons sickly and wasting away which is what those words mean now it's possible those names have been given because of the famine conditions but Bible names are generally prophetic especially in the Old Testament I think you would have looked at these boys, they would have been lusty, healthy, attractive, successful. Oh, they had fullness of physical bread, all right. But there was a famine in their soul. When it came to spiritual stature, they were weak and sickly. They had no heavenly wisdom and discernment. They were Israelites in name only, but Moabites in <coughs> culture, habits, values. When it came to the spiritual man, 
They were emaciated carcasses with one foot in Jehovah's army and one foot in love with Satan's world system. And make no mistake, in this particular case, much of their damnation lies at the feet of their own father. Will you realize something, dads, moms? A dose of Christianity sprinkled into a carnal and self-filled life, you know what it is? It acts like a vaccination. It has just enough religion in it to keep people from ever catching the real thing. That's a scary thing to say, but it's true. Now in quick succession, those seeds planted years ago now erupt into this horrendous fruit. Verse 3, Elimelech dies presumably early, cut off. But you know, he's, he's still only those 60 miles from the house of bread and praise, but he may as well be a thousand miles away in philosophy and direction. He's buried in a pagan nation among the enemies of God. And then one day those boys, Malon brings home a Moabite girl to meet mom. Eventually Chilean does the same. Someone says, well, was it right to marry a Moabite? Well, that's, that's quite a question. Believe it or not, there's actually no Old Testament text that specifically forbids marriage to a Moabite. But let me tell you what is there. Two key passages. Deuteronomy 33 says, A Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord into the tenth generation because they refused to accept and help the Jews and they came through their land. But here's the other most important one. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 forbids marriage and it lists the Canaanite nations. It says, don't marry the women from these Canaanite countries. Why? Because their false gods would turn your hearts away. The principle was don't marry wives who worship idols. And both of these women did initially. And by the way, the Moabite gods, you can look it up on your own. They were the incarnation of lust and cruelty. They were one of the nations that burned children alive. But you see, here's where their parents' rationalizing of sin comes full circle. They could cling to the letter of the law and say, well, you know, Mom, uh, it never actually says don't marry a Moabite. But the principle is don't be linked with idolaters. That's the principle. You see, our own sinful heart is going to do the same thing with the Scriptures constantly. When it's convenient to reject the specific letter of the law, your nature is going to do it. When it's convenient to stick strictly with the letter of the law and miss the broader principle, your nature is going to do it. So no, there's no text saying don't marry a Moabite, but there's ample wisdom given from the heart of God saying don't go this way. Well, of course they did. Verse 4, what did they do now? Heads of homes, they head back for the house of bread? No, it says they stayed another ten years. And then in verse 5, both of them are cut off. Well, now you've got three graves in a foreign land. Years wasted, distant from God, Naomi makes her way back home. And what sad words there 
when she comes back to her homeland. I mean, they're just incredulous looking at her. Is, it, is, this, is this pleasant? Is this, is this Naomi? She said unto me, Call me not Naomi. Call me not pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Imagine if you could have interviewed Elimelech just as he was loading up his carts. Sir, do you, uh, you plan to be there long? You think there's a chance you're going to be removed early because of this decision? You think there's a chance your boys are going to suffer eternal consequences and die early because of this decision? You think many years from now your wife's going to return from Moab alone except for a Moabite daughter-in-law and be scarcely recognizable to her own people and asked to be called bitter instead of pleasant? You say, oh no, we can handle Moab. It's okay just this once. We'll be back shortly. Little did he believe that sojourn was going to become permanent and that he would die in that country. And this doesn't just apply to fathers. How about you this morning? Some of you, there's areas where you know you're sojourning in Moab. You're justifying sin. You're justifying disobedience because you're only going to be there for a while. You can handle it, you say. Be back before you know it. Will you? Do you know what blessings are going to be forfeited because of it? No, you don't. Do you know the discipline that's going to come? No, you don't. Do you know how it's going to affect those coming after you? No, you don't. Why not come back fully to the house of bread and praise? What real eternal reason is there to stay outside of that? I mean, if you continue your present course now, the way you've lived the last three weeks, what's the real end result? And if you don't like the real end result, do something about it. No one else can do that for you. No one else can return back to the house of bread and praise. You've got to do it. I don't think any of us men have the intention of leading our family into this kind of situation. But it can happen. It's a very real danger. But you know, the house of bread and praise is still open and available. God is a merciful God. He will not cleanse you of sin you're not willing to come and deal with as His child. Not at a parental level. You say, well, I'm a Christian. My sins are dealt with. Yeah, they are with God as judge. But unconfessed sin is like stiff-arming the Lord and saying, get away from me. I don't need you that close to me. Why do we do that? Maybe you're sitting here and you say, you know, I... Uh, I don't even know my sins are forgiven. Well, there's good news for you too. 
the Lord has promised. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If someone has questions about that, please come talk to me. Several of us here would be glad to help. Listen, we don't have time for delay. Every step sojourning in Moab is another step towards putting down a permanent foundation and staying there. It's time to rip up the tent stakes and head back to where we ought to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Lord, for these really few but yet such great details you give in this life of this particular family, this man. Father, help us to have a balanced view of your mercy, your goodness, your patience, but also, Lord, your severity. Lord, the fact that you don't respect persons. You know how our sin nature, we all fancy ourselves to be God's little pet, as though we can get away with things that others can't. I pray you'd convince us of the satanic lie that is, that there's not a one of us here that can't be totally destroyed by iniquity, not one. Let us not have a wrongful fear where we panic, but Lord, let us have a rightful fear where we listen to what you say. We don't sojourn in Moab, but we remain where you want to bless us. Thank you, Lord, that you are merciful and tender and quick and ready to forgive and able to forgive. In Jesus' name, amen.